0: we sit squarely in the middle of an absurdist drama. Two years on, many pandemic public health policies, from lockdowns to mandates, have proven painfully
1: misguided. The results are in, the rich got richer, and they got richer faster than ever before, and they seem, it would appear, to have almost a rooting interest in this new status quo. Today I sit down with novelist, author, and journalist Walter
0: Kern to better understand our current political and cultural moment and how we got
1: here. Only in politics do results not matter. Politics seems to be the art of doing something ineffective or even damaging, but having an ideological justification for it that survives the disaster and goes on to create more. This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Yanya Kellick.
0: Walter Kern, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to be here. Great to be here. You know, Walter, I think you must be, at least right now, one of my favorite contemporary students of the human condition.
1: Well, good. I have no degree in it, but I've aspired since boyhood to study it. So mission accomplished. Thank you. Well, you know, people keep sending
0: me, you know, a a new essay of yours. Hey, have you seen this? This is interesting. I know you've been looking at this. This is something that's really been... um, on my mind and what it is is it's amazing to me over the last let's say five, six years I've discovered how incredibly important it is to people to have a sense of belonging and I think you actually sort of built on that in, in the essay just to make sure I get it right the power and the silence you said it has more to do with being acceptable to the person that has the power necessarily, kind of beyond this sense of belonging. I thought that was very fascinating. So,
1: that, so that essay was built on an anecdote that was uh, told to me by a uh, former president of a major U.S. bank, and uh, he was in a golf tournament at Warren Buffett's um, uh, golf course on the morning of 9/11, 2001, and uh, Warren had a uh, rule that cell phones the new fancy cell phone that man had invented was not to be allowed to disturb the golf tournament and so everyone was um acting as though they didn't have one in their golf bag or in their caddy's pocket when the news of 9 11 started causing those phones to ring the um the, the collected ceos and world-class celebrities at this tournament snuck away to learn that you know the, the towers had fallen in New York and the Pentagon had been attacked, but so cowed were they by Warren's uh, prohibition or his ban on cell phones that they couldn't um, that they couldn't show their reactions to this attack on the United States. Their fear of displeasing Warren, their business superior, was greater than their need to. Um, you know, react to an emergency of that scale. And uh, so I used that anecdote to really illustrate the point that you made, that in human behavior, uh, we're told it's self-interest that rules. But in fact, as demonstrated by this story and, and many others, what seems to be the most prominent instinct, social instinct in people, is to please those who have power over them to make the command chain feel good about itself and be good um soldiers in whatever effort is deemed uh most important at the time and 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 so uh i think that explains a lot about human behavior generally but especially lately as people's sense of what's going on around them and the disasters and difficulties they're facing in this COVID era are inconvenient to state because the line coming from the top is you know we've got this handled or the vaccines are working or you know uh, lockdowns have no cost or whatever whatever the lines coming from the top are, are that are at variance with people's actual experience tend to lead to people Yielding to the line, yielding to the um, command or the propaganda, and suppressing their own reactions and that's a uh, a reflex I've seen almost endemic to this situation
0: Well, and it's fascinating, but there's also you know some I guess portion of the population that seems to kind of enthusiastically support um, whatever the the decrees are. And frankly, you know, to some extent, almost, you know, in a cruel way, vilify the people who aren't participating,
1: is it? Well, the thing that's happened during COVID is that time and time again, we've gotten a a scapegoat for the situation. Um, Before the vaccines, before it was the unvaccinated, it was the people who were reluctant to wear masks or, or the people who, were keeping their businesses open despite the supposed efflorescence of cases. Um, And so at every step, we've been asked to blame someone, usually to the side of us rather than above us, for the pandemic itself and for the toll that it's taken. And people's willingness to um, eagerly uh, participate in that scapegoating has been troubling but not, if you know something about the sort of history of social science, surprising. We're we're a species that has been shown in the lab. You know, you see the Milgram experiment often uh, alluded to in this context. Uh, We're a species that is quite willing to administer pain and um, uh, blame and and, uh, anger to one another, rather than look up and uh, question the authority that would have us be aggressive or angry or divisive. You know, it's
0: fascinating. I do see the Milgram experiment, I guess, referenced a lot. Kind of is, a, I guess, a, the
1: same idea as your story, right? Yeah, the absence Mil- the of the Milgram experiment was that I think it was conducted using students, um, our guinea pig population even now, because they, they seem to be bearing the brunt of our COVID policies, but um, uh, the idea was that they were um, given orders by an authority figure, I guess the chief scientist involved, to uh, administer shocks to people in other rooms. I think people that they could even see through uh, transparent partitions. And they were willing to do this to an extent that was nauseating maybe to a general audience. But in the uh, confines of the lab, uh, was showed remarkable willingness to be sadistic almost uh, on behalf of power right and
0: i mean and and frankly almost not really be aware and that that that's the part that i find really interesting right not be aware that that that's what you're kind of engaged in
1: yeah right. well there has been a sense throughout this uh pandemic that to be on the right side of it uh will bear no consequences um that that if you are operating uh in accord with the authorities uh, you you won't face punishment even if the people you're vilifying demonizing ostracizing are your own neighbors you know you, you you'd think that feedback from them or uh you know backlash from them would be the most uh urgent concern for people, but it seems to be that disfavor from above uh, trumps that. So you describe this, let's
0: call it this whole thing, this whole milieu that we're in as a drama. Yes. What is the drama? T- explain it to me. What is the drama you're seeing?
1: Well, if we're going to combine it to the last couple of years, the drama is, consists of a hidden enemy suddenly showing itself with powers as yet to be comprehended, which um, forces us into a defensive uh, uh, position in every fashion, you know, personally, uh, professionally, um, politically. And while we are reeling from the assault of this, you know, Trump used to call it the hidden enemy or something, uh, we are being directed from on high to do various things to um, protect ourselves, protect the community and so on, which have in their cumulative effect become more and more absurd. Uh, We are promised ways out of this pandemic. uh, It's like one of those escape rooms that people go to for amusement. you know, and and the door opens, but there's another locked door behind it. And, you know, if you mask, you'll be out of it. If you uh, distance yourselves, if you stay in your homes, if you order your food from, you know, DoorDash, if you take the vaccine, if you take the booster. And every one of these um, commandments, you know, and if it's going to be a stage play, they come maybe from a megaphone on high has led to a a new surge of hope that this new uh, difficult regime is about to end and then a new crashing wave of disappointment that in fact it isn't. And so, you know, as a drama, it maybe went from a dark tragic thing to a dark tragic farce and that's where we're standing today, I think. Uh, You know, I've said that the novel Catch-22 about the sort of absurdities and contradictions of bureaucratic um, rule is the best fictional uh, evocation of our situation. And, uh, and now I think we sit squarely in the middle of an absurdist drama where what we thought was common sense is uh, you know, portrayed to us as a problem, you know the common sense of taking care of yourself and you know treating diseases with medicines that decrease the symptoms and so on that that that's a uh, that's outrageous you know you wait for you wait for the super vaccine you do everything but what you used to do when you got an airborne virus um So I I really do, I think we're in the grips of a a kind of, if you're gonna personify it, a a mad captain, you know, Captain Quig or or some sort of uh, capricious monster. By this
0: monster, you're not referring to any one person. This is some sort of emergent property or something, or what are you thinking here?
1: An emergent property would be a nice uh, sort of uh, academic way to describe a Hydra-headed bureaucracy which includes supporting characters like Bill Gates. I mean, never in my lifetime, in all of the crises I've lived through, has a billionaire uh, weighed in as some sort of actor in a public emergency. But we've, you know, we've got Bill Gates, we've got Fauci, Walensky, uh, The the Who, um, all of these uh, authority figures operating pretty much in a coordinated fashion. When you say it's an emergent thing it's a a certain kind of behavior seems to be common to this whole group Um, and one of the signal features of that behavior is amnesia. I have been asked throughout COVID to take as gospel a series of absolutely contradictory directives which show very little um, awareness of the past uh, or even recently passed um, directive that didn 't work, so I mean you know Groundhog Day would be another popular novel or a popular movie that might you know afford some allegorical uh, amusement in this situation because we do seem to be cycling through the same process of Looking to authority, being disappointed by it, and then redoubling our search for an authoritative answer,
0: you know one of the things that's really been i guess on my mind throughout throughout all of this is this idea and i and I started thinking about it with, with when I was thinking about woke ideology or the elect, as John McWhorter, uh calls the people that that, that practice it mm. um, is this Con- disjunction between intention or connection between uh, intention and uh, impact, right. right? So you hear when it comes to people's feelings, according to this ideology, it doesn't matter what your intention is, it's the impact. If someone's feelings are heard, right. you're at fault, right? right. right? Now, the, the crazy thing about this is, and this, <laughs> this keeps drilling into me, is that when it comes to implementing policy, it's actually the exact opposite. It's only the intent that matters, but the, whatever the consequence, however outrageous, it kind of doesn't matter. It's the, it's the good intent that matters. And that is, it, it,
1: reality, shouldn't it, be, it should be the other way around, at least in my mind, right? Anyway. By their fruits you shall know them. Uh, that's been suspended, and it's by their good intentions you shall judge them. Um, but you're right. There, there, there's, a, there's a real intellectual contradiction here in the landscape. On the one hand, we live in a time of microaggressions and uh, speech as violence, and uh, as you say, if I feel bad, it doesn't matter if you were trying to make me feel bad, it only matters that I do. Um, then we suspend that, uh, we suspend, suspend that criteria for the very powerful now, who are constantly excused on the basis of having Good aims, um, and and every time one of their uh, one of their edicts falls apart, or every time they say something like, "Oh, but masks, cloth masks, never worked," um, uh, you know this Orwellian. We're told, "Yeah, but their heart's in the right place; they care for the community." And new information has emerged. And so we constantly have to forgive the consequences and, and often the dire consequences of their, um, of their commands for some floating sense of their civic-mindedness. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, only in politics do results not matter. You know, um, politics seems to be the art of doings, doing something ineffective or even damaging and but 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 having an ideological justification for it that survives the disaster and goes on to create more um, and uh you know we are, we are deep into the process of uh, uh of denial about uh, about the consequences of the covid regime and we're also deep into the sort of occult um adoration of the people who have made these mistakes and propounded these, to my mind, awful policies.
0: You know, the, the thing that kind of brings all this together, I guess for me, is this, it's almost like we've lost our, we're, we're losing touch with reality Almost like being, being important, and I know, like I know, you think a lot, a lot about this because you're commenting on the metaverse right, all the time, right. which is kind of you know reality TM or whatever. Right, right. Um, but in, in a world where reality is just what someone says it is on a given time, or what someone feels on a given time, like th- that's the sort of reality where everything you just described becomes possible.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, you know. So, reality is supposedly, in the West, the ground of our intellectual investigations. Uh, Science is, as classically defined, the, the exercise of experimentation and hypothesis in pursuit of deeper and deeper awareness of the real. That's science. Political science, and they become confused, seems to be more and more about the construction of a alternative reality, which is to be preferred in fact to the sort of substantial reality that science investigates, because politics has taken a sort of social view of of events such that. They can be, it is their engineering and their, and their manipulation that's more important than their, than their essence. And I, I sometimes wonder if the political leaders of the moment and the bureaucratic and their bureaucratic instruments even believe that reality exists independently of their uh, machinations. Uh, you know, it is what I say it is. They 're sort of like Norman Desmond, the imperious uh, silent movie star you know who who says you know she 's living alone in her mansion and hasn't had a movie in years, and they ask her what 's wrong, and she says, "Well, the movies got small it wasn 't me and and, and and sometimes I feel like these faucian bureaucrats and and, and some of these you know uh, blowhard politicians are saying you know." Uh, Reality is what I say it is. It's not I that was wrong, it's the world. Um, they're they're starting to diverge from anything that we uh, formally believed was sanity. Uh, sanity as defined by some sort of correlation between your belief system and what's actually happening. Their belief systems have become preeminent and You know, that's what happens, especially, I think, with left-wing ideology. It's so concerned with the engineering of a utopian future that it sees the present only as material to be shaped for that purpose, rather than something having an independent life.
0: Well, and there's this other element where it's really, it's basically just about power where whoever holds the power, wields the power, decides and and so everything is sort of I guess built around trying to get that, keep it, I mean this...
1: It's a very cynical time and it's a cynical time that believes itself to be uh, an ideologically pure and even optimistic time. You hear people saying things like, which which used to be jokes, like it's not it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. But you'd now hear that from the top. It's who puts out the statistics, not the reality that creates them that's important. And uh, that's the sense in which I think that our leaders are becoming uh, almost fatally detached from the ground. Um, they, they have begun to think that the painting that they make, is more important than the landscape they're trying to depict. Well, you're
0: grounded in, uh, I guess, some sort of reality. You're out in rural Montana. You don't like to come here to New York. I know that.
1: <laughs> I like it as a, I like it as a uh, diversion. Um, were I to be trapped here without a flight home, I'd get anxious after about four days. Um, but you know, rural Montana is really just part of the great midwestern non-coastal american uh, heartland it's you know it's it's no longer the place of cowboys and you know whatever yellowstone the tv show depicts it's not quite like that but 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 living in a small town in montana does put me in touch with you know a variety of people who i might not be in touch with if i lived in a place like new york you know hardware store owner across the street now Current economic problems uh, uh, involve shortages and inflation and so on were um, were evident to me Many many months ago just through my conversations with the guy who owns the hardware store You know, I can't get these bolts. I I can't get uh, these power tools. Um, I can't get this sort of lumber Um, and uh, so knowing that I have not been surprised at all by these supply chain problems and and the persistence of inflation and so on. Uh, a small town is really a laboratory in pragmatism and and getting things done, you know. We don't generate in Livingston, Montana, the opinion that moves millions. We aren't a center of, uh, of legislative power, of media power, or of commercial power. Uh, the business of a small town is surviving, and it, that's the business of America for the most part. And as people report on their uh, adventures in survival, I get very good information, it, uh, and it's proven, Correct time and again in uh, later trends, you know, one reason it tends to be uh, good information is that the um, incentives to lie are very, are very small in a, in a little town, you know. The, the incentives to please power because power isn't really present there are, are, are very low.
0: Well, and, and, and the cost of lying too much, you know, you have to face your your neighbor the next day, right? If Once you get found out.
1: Exactly. I mean, a hardware store owner, uh, plumbing and heating guy, uh, a truck driver, um, to n- name a few of the professions of people that I happen to know in my daily life, are reality-based almost uh, to a fault in the sense that, a lot of America, I think, right now is um, immersed in the business of making sure its bank account shows a positive balance at the end of the month, making sure that their business can meet payroll, uh, making sure that their uh, child's tuition can be paid, and so on. And you know, it's, it's unfair to the country to accuse it of being uh, out to lunch or... or, or, or Uh, in denial or deluded when we realize that, in fact, most of them are just very busy. Their need to or their desire to form big picture analyses and forecasts of things is, uh, you know, maybe they got 15 minutes before bed to do that if they want. Um, And and they also are dependent on uh, commercial media to, to do that for them. A dependence which I think a lot of them are weaning themselves from.
0: <laughs> well, I know, you know, I, we, we're definitely going to have to talk about media because I, I'm, it's, it's really interesting how someone with your, let's say, journalistic pedigree, right? Um, well, you're not, you're not talking the same way a lot of other folks with a similar pedigree are talking right now. So I, I want to talk about that. Before we go there, though, this is what strikes me. Um, you know, one of the consequences of pandemic policy, yeah, right? has been, I think unequivocally, a vast, vast upward transfer of massive wealth to the wealthiest in in the world and a huge cost to the working class and perhaps the middle class, certainly the working class, I've seen those numbers. Um, So, you know, what you're talking about makes a ton of sense, like people are busy and busy surviving, right, in these places. Yeah. And so, I guess guess what I'm saying is I don't think this is something that there's a huge awareness of, but this is there's been a massive shift over the past couple of years. You know, people talk about Gini coefficients and that you know it's important to not get it too high. Well that I, I don't know what it is gonna be for the coming year, but it, it's gonna shift.
1: Why should the hardware store next door to me have at one point to close its doors when the Costco twenty miles, the Costco warehouse with its parking lot for thousands of cars practically hundreds certainly uh be wide open um why why should amazon be able to you know uh come right to your door and send its drivers out in the middle of a pandemic and so on while everyone else has to stay uh locked up um the wealth transfer has been immense it's been measured the number of new billionaires uh, the, the 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 extent to which those fifteen top billionaires um, quadrupled or multiplied their wealth has has been now uh, calculated um, the results are in the rich got richer and they got richer faster than ever before and uh, they seem it would appear to have almost a rooting interest in this new status quo, because why should they voluntarily retire from the business of getting richer uh, when uh, it's working so well? Uh, They tend to identify therein, you know, what's good for Bill Gates is good for the country. You know, what they used to say, what good for General Motors is good for America. Um, It's frightening, frankly, to see the most powerful people in society uh, incentivized to continue this regimen, which is such a disaster for everyone else um, they aren't protesting they aren't trying to get kids back in school they aren't worried about you know the survival of small businesses or the excess deaths that seem to be um, occurring uh, and Bill Gates, I read last night, is warning of even worse pandemics. Now, I have seen a lot of dystopian movies and I read a lot of science fiction, but in very few of them have the world's richest or second richest person appeared on TV to scare and terrify the populace with scenarios of death, destruction and disease. That that's not a healthy society, that in which that either happens or is tolerated.
0: You know. So let let let's let's go into this media media question that I was mentioning a bit earlier. You know. You, so how is it that Walter Kern has this? I think I, I when we were chatting, you know, another time I called you contrarian. You contested that. Yes. I thought that was I thought that was very thoughtful, actually but let's say different, quite different perspective on the world and than people than, you're, than frankly your peers,
1: right? Well, it, it has to do with my path through life, frankly. I grew up in rural Minnesota. I grew up on a farm. I went to a school that's now closed because it didn't have enough students. Kindergarten through 12th grade in one building. And uh, that was my reality until uh, I went off to Princeton University. You can imagine, the collision between farm kid and um, child of of wealth at Princeton that I experienced. I then went to Oxford University on a fellowship. I was academically fit to do that, and forever grateful I was given the opportunity. Came back to New York City, worked in at Vanity Fair magazine, many other magazines. I, I've I've written for Time. I've uh, written for the New Republic, I've been a columnist at Harper's. These are these last two magazines, very establishment liberal magazines. And so rather than a contrarian, I'm, I'm still just that kid, uh, Dorothy from Kansas, uh, maybe, uh, seeing the ways of power without a lot of stake in... Mm, in affirming the ways of power. I just feel like a kid who snuck into the fair and is peeking in the back and seeing you know, how the con artists operate and so on and how the carnies uh, seduce their marks. But it's not contrary because uh, I'm not reacting to anything, I'm simply reporting with a natural skepticism, which I thought was the job of all reporters. I mean, the reason I set out to become a journalist or become a writer was I wanted to tell the truth that those people who have um, authority and power in society might not want told, um, or might not even be able to see by virtue of their position. You know, they, they, they're, they're subject to agreements and tribal loyalties that may not allow them to perceive correctly what's going on. I thought the job of a reporter was to be that little boy who sees the, you know, emperor naked or um, and, and, and I found out to my chagrin that there's a name for that. They call it a contrarian. They might even call it a conspiracy theorist if you were to note that a few of them got together to do something that wasn't good. Um, and I always thought of it just as the job. So. Yeah, I do reject contrarian, just as I, you know, reject a lot of the labels they're using now to marginalize people. You know, they call people who are who don't want to take the vaccine anti vaxxers as though they have an ideology. Well, they don't. They, there's a certain medicine that they are feel dubious about, and maybe not, and maybe don't feel they need. Um, uh, and so the establishment, the system, which does exist. And I mean, I'm here to tell you that my voyage from farm to the canyons of midtown Manhattan media has taught me, yeah, they know each other. There's a group, there's a set of institutional affiliations, marriages, um, old school ties, uh, financial bonds that in aggregate do create an establishment which does have some consciousness of itself, its own, needs, desires, and interests, and, uh, um, you know, to, to honestly reflect that fact is not to me to be contrary, it's simply to be clear.
0: Also, of course, now I'm thinking about another essay which you wrote, which a number of people actually sent my way. Uh, which is well, actually, I can't
1: say the name on the show. Okay. The BS. Yeah, the BS. <laughs> so, 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 I, 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 um, I grew up in the Mormon Church. I don't like to swear, but I decided that my mm, revulsion with the uh, with the media and the big electronic and corporate media, especially, deserved uh, a exception to my policy of of Andy Griffith. Uh, euphemisms and so I I called it the BS, used the whole word and that came about one morning when I was uh, sitting on my Apple iPhone and looking at the headlines it pushes at me and and my wife said to me what are you doing and I said oh I'm just looking at today's BS you know and, and I decided because part of my job as a writer I think is to take things that are complex And render them simple uh, or at least uh, mm, translate them into simpler terms and I I said oh that's just gonna be my word for the whole thing. The stuff that comes in your iPhone, the stuff that streams on your TV, the internet headlines every time you you know log on to Yahoo or whatever it's all the BS and never has it behaved more like the BS than now. I mean, I've actually gotten to a kind of a radical point at which I wonder if consuming this stuff at all is good. People argue, well, you know, even if it's not all credible, you should know what they're saying. And I I used to believe that myself, but now I don't even know that I should know what they're saying because The minute I know what they're saying, the minute I know the kind of stories they're launching and the fables they're telling and the propaganda they're pushing, I become enmeshed in it and I become emotionally uh, agitated and I start to push back against it and debate it when in fact I should not be be in that neighborhood. Mm. Why go into a neighborhood where there's only trouble? Why not try to create a separate, uh, a, a, a separate, parallel, unmeeting, and superior um, uh, process for understanding events. This one is so, you know, to use a legal term, it's all the fruit of the poisoned tree. If the tree's poisoned, why do I keep picking the fruit? Even if it's to put it in my mouth and reject it, maybe I should get out of that forest and find another one or grow one even, you know.
0: You know, so this is uh, evolution, because I actually pulled something on exactly this topic from, the, from that essay. You had wrote, you know, engaging with the BS news stream for the defensive and defensive deconstructive reasons has been my personal program for a while now. The game can be intellectually amusing. It confers a sense of brave revulsion. But now you've evolved from this yeah. position, it seems.
1: I don't want to be outraged anymore, because to be really, you know, folkloric with you, I think they want me outraged. We know that campaign politics has a thing called the wedge issue. An issue that isn't, an issue that isn't really pressing in reality but which if brought into the conversation will cause people to sort themselves into warring camps and hopefully 51 percent of them will come to your side. I don't know that I want any more to have a wedge issue per hour inserted into my consciousness such that I can't see the big picture. And like I say, I used to think, well, you know, imagine I'm in a communist country. I, I watch the propaganda channel just to see what the party wants me to believe so that I can, what, um, counter it, um, not believe it, uh, laugh at it, um, be angry about it. but. At least in the U.S. there is still an alternative, which is to cultivate other sources, um, other uh, uh, to to, uh, grant credibility if earned to other authority figures, and there is a very dynamic alternative press in the United States now. It's not as easy to read. It doesn't just You know, its factory just doesn't send out one headline that you swallow a whole. There are often strong personalities involved and, you know, sometimes actual misinformation. It it requires a lot of critical and and analytic and uh, sort of social uh, wisdom to uh, interpret. But the result to me is often something approaching reality. Well, Whereas the result of swallowing whole the, you know, the daily line, the seven word uh, soundbite is fury, confusion, and demoralization. And more than anything, I think all of us are fighting demoralization. You know, um, it would be very easy, given the drama that I've described earlier, to reach a point of Inert, numb detachment, and even depression. And we've seen that in the country. I mean, we've got, actual, we've got an actual epidemic of depression. And some of it comes from people losing their jobs and le- their livelihoods and be, you know, being forced to let relatives die in institutions that they can't walk through the front door of because of some COVID policy but i think some of that depression comes from a real collapse of faith in in the reality guides that we use to rely on i keep seeing various
0: types of messaging for example on twitter which you know i both of us use use yeah. quite a bit I, I i see and i don't know if this is just for me or if it's for the whole population because i don't know how their algorithms work but for example you know I see fact checks being kind of prominently displayed, sometimes days on end, right? So the one that that has been up for the last two days for me has been the Great Reset is the World Economic Forum's proposal for post-COVID economic recovery, Reuters and BBC report. And then they explain they're, that they're debunking all sorts of conspiracy theories around the concept of the Great Reset. Right. Like why, so, and I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what is it that, how are they deciding what it is, and what do they think this will do for the viewer?
1: First of all, that's not a fact check. That's a concept check. That's a thought check. Um, you know, a yes. fact check would be is there such a thing as a great reset or not? Uh, does it come from the language of the World Economic Forum or not? Um, uh, uh, what this is is here's how you should think about the great reset. Here, here are its real purposes. You go to its intentions are to reconstruct society at, at, at the end of COVID. Um, I can fact check that fact check and tell you that the, the Great Reset was a concept that preceded COVID. That the notion that there was this fourth industrial revolution, as the World Economic Forum likes to call it, in which you know digital identification and 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 other um, tools will be used. To kind of reformat the economy and, and our interactions with each other, that that's that was going on long before COVID. Um, COVID may have been the proximate excuse to hasten its uh, advance, but but so so that 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 fact check in itself, uh, I would submit, is erroneous. But this notion that we need to be constantly wrapped on the knuckles every time we um, think the wrong way, really, Think the right? wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, they're, they're not so much the thought police as, as the thought, uh, you know, hall monitors or, 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 you know, the thought bathroom attendants. You know, um, they, 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 they work below the level of the law and below the level of actual punishment to keep us constantly in motion in the direction that they wish us to go. I mean they're like sheepdogs nipping at the heel of the herd um, and more and more this seems to be what journalism believes its mission to be. Uh, we think of journalism, or I do in my old-fashioned way, as revelatory. It's about revealing um, uh, and, uh, and exposing and uh, opening up a view of the facts. But journalism has become disciplinary in this most recent time. It's about disciplining the response to events. It's about disciplining the thought streams of the audience. It's about calling out misinformation and disinformation, which is an interest. you know, I I saw the other day that CNN has just um, put out a call for uh, its uh, 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 sort of an employment advertisement for its new misinformation unit. They want to not only not only do they want to be the presumed um, bearers of of the true story, they want to be the punishers of the untrue. Well, to do that second thing, you have to do the first thing well, and they haven't. So
0: are we living something closer to 1984 or something closer to Brave New World? Is it Orwell or is it Huxley? And I'm not going to say what I'm thinking these days. You tell me.
1: Okay, well, when I was at Harper's, a little background, because I've done a lot of thinking on the relationship of dystopian literature to the present, Uh, and I I wrote a column for Harper's in which I made the observation that I think dystopian literature, despite being depressing, is so popular because we think that if we read about it, if we worry about it in advance, it won't happen. That's proved to be a false hope. Uh, The fact that you can identify a um, malevolent trend doesn't at all prevent it from reaching completion. Those are two pillars of the dystopian canon that you've mentioned. In 1984, which was in a way a transfer of Stalin's Russia onto the post-war landscape of, uh, of England, um, the great reigning feature is austerity to the point of kind of uh, grim uh, shortages and, and, and people huddled in unheated apartments and so on. And the rule of the party is through fear. Uh, the, the, the Big Brother rules through, and the Ministry of Truth and the uh, other um, uh, instruments of government rule through fear, they rule through fear and deception. In the Huxleyan vision, rule is conducted through anesthesia. Uh, people are people are made to conform, comply, um, go, and go along through the use of um, amusement. Diverting entertainment and actual drugs that cause euphoria or you know uh, chemical gratification so In 1984 the people were scared in Huxley's Brave New World they're asleep or You know caught up in trivial gratification These don't have to be um mutually exclusive uh scenarios uh, because what i see as the present uh our present predicament is a merger of the two uh visions we are at once anesthetized by tiktok by pharmaceutical drugs by illegal drugs by Hollywood, by a kind of news as entertainment. On the other hand, to give the Orwell uh, position, we are also afraid. We know ourselves to be surveilled. As a journalist, there was a year when I realized that that private communications with sources were not private or could not be presumed to be. And every good journalist now uses some form of signal or other uh, communications app thought to be less uh, uh, surveilled or surveillable. My fear that I'm being watched, which is rational because I am, comes with a fear of being ostracized, which is even more uh, acute and I think even more influential in our day to day life. We put up an opinion on social media or even in conversation, and we find ourselves rather instantly, if it's Twitter especially, um, attacked, uh, denigrated, called names, or just dropped. You know, I blocked him. And so between the stick of Orwell and the drugged carrot of Huxley, we are, I think, a much more complacent and malleable and somewhat manipulable society than we used to be. And the people whose job, or who see it as their job, to to govern us, to guide us, to direct us, and to exploit us, often, have used a combination of these age-old tools. And, you know, uh, listen, it's much more Huxleyan than Orwellian to be locked up in your house but to, by, 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 by official decree, but to find it pleasant because you can play video games and order food. That, you know, a, a, and maybe if you live in a medical marijuana state, or a legal marijuana state, you know, be, be high. That's, that's Huxley to a T, you know. Vax cards, presenting your papers, um, worrying if something you said on Twitter is going to get you canceled, canned from your job, um, or rejected by your friends, that's Horwell. And we've got a great cocktail going, um, I say with morbid humor um so so these are these are um compatible and fully interoperable visions that for all i know were used as templates by the more uh sinister forces in society and there are sinister forces i mean you know we have a we have a multi-billion hundreds of billions dollar Uh, intelligence budget in this country. Where do we think that money goes? You know, we've got, um, we've been studying for a hundred years techniques of propaganda and um, behavioral uh, manipulation, often to use in societies where we let's say want to de-radicalize Islamic uh, extremists. Um, You know, the military has perfected the PSYOP. And then the other day, I read a Bloomberg headline on Twitter in defense of PSYOPs as ways to combat misinformation. It was actually the headline. PSYOPs, you know, to to paraphrase, PSYOPs are good because they combat misinformation. Oh, well, maybe that's a news perhaps to the naive american um oh i've been the subject of psychological operations a military term well it's not me suspecting that it's bloomberg celebrating it never thought we'd get there not so quickly
0: the the there was a headline from a little while ago which i thought was really interesting it's tied to a book that is sort of you know at the top of my list right now out of the uk where, um, I I forget what they're called, behavioral... Nudges. Well, yeah, so basically, but there's actually, governments have these behavioral unit, behavioral modification unit or something like this, where they do this so-called nudging, right, of the population in a particular direction. And then, you know, there was some of these people in this book are basically saying, I think we may have gone a little too far on the fear side of things. Like they're kind of admitting this and just and they're just reading about this. I thought that's fascinating. But aren't we talking about like the removal of, you know, core democratic agency here? Isn't that the corollary of of this type of activity? I mean, it's it's kind of incredible. That, well, the point is that 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 this is obviously being done without the awareness of the population, which is supposed to be electing the people that are putting out the decrees about what they're going to do, right? What these what these units are going to do.
1: So, so to break down what you just said, yeah, the UK found that its use of psychological techniques to create fear in the population, so as to foster in compliance with the COVID regimen went too far. It's like they have a soundboard. Let's hope one of the levers is labeled hope. One of the levers is labeled you know financial incentives. Incentives. One is labeled fear. Well, now they're admitting we turned the fear level uh, 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 a little too high. Um, shouldn't the news be that we were doing this at all, and then that we did it wrong? But but they. They sort of buried the lead and they said, we did it a little bit incorrectly. Here in the United States, we have this uh, Harvard psychologist, Cass Sunstein, who was brought in under the Obama administration to nudge and use his sort of academic uh, knowledge to nudge people into what were thought to be socially desirable. Uh, decisions, and it's a kind of pseudoscience of of getting people to do things for their own good that they thought was helpful for uh, desirable civic ends. But in both cases, you're talking about overriding agency, you're talking about overriding free will with invisible manipulations in order to get a desired response. Now is that incompatible with the project of democracy as classically understood? Because Democracy was thought to be the, um, the collective exercise of the will of the people and that will was thought to be the result of their hopefully educated and enlightened sense of their own interests and of reality. What sort of democracy is it where it's a robotic and automated process of getting people to, to vote, you know, yes, they, they, they sign off on decisions that in a sense they haven't made, that were made for them and installed in their consciousness. That, that's a travesty. It's a philosophical travesty. You know, yes, everyone gets a vote and we decide what it is. And, and we install the opinions and the urges that lead to that vote. That, that's a subversion of the democratic ideal at its very root. But there seem to be these Dr. Strangelove-like characters in, 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 in modern technocratic government who believe that it is um, fitting that people be moved to do the right thing below the level of consciousness, that their instincts and their emotions be, uh, be engineered to bring about outcomes that the state itself has identified as desirable. When we talk about elitism, what we're really talking about is a class of people who believe it's their job to, um, to uh, engineer and bring about right behavior. Using tools that often only they know they have and that elitist vision of democracy has gotten to my mind. I mean, it's, it's all well and good to, uh, to guide inform, um, uh, exhort and use all the traditional uh, political tools to bring about your desired outcomes, but to sort of get into the operating system of the human mind and program it without its knowledge. You know, that's a matter for science fiction writers, not American citizens. No one should aspire to be an automaton. And yet, some seem to feel content being one. And it's because their deep conviction is that these people want the best for us. And they're advertising their own virtue, you know, our leadership advertises its own virtue nonstop. It's it's uh, it's forgivable to think that they are the saints or the you know the seers and priests of the new good that they purport to be. How how wearisome it is to wake up every day, having to you know interpret the propaganda, fight back against the, the buzzwords and the emotional uh, button pushing. It's just it's just exhausting. In a war, the side that wins first is the side that still has energy left and the side that loses is the one that gets tired. And and I think, to some degree, we're all tired of this dance that we've been playing with authority. This dance we've been engaged with in authority. Or, or a card game, even, in which they seem to hold cards that we can't see. That, that, that British story suggests that they used fear by what? Um, amplifying disturbing statistics? Um, using rhetoric that was darker than need be? I mean, uh, well, when you, when you uh, inflict such stress and, and anxiety and um, apprehension on a subject population, it will, after a while, grow weary and demoralized and dispirited and, and uh, you know that that that's the worst case scenario for this sort of uh, relationship with government that the people actually grow that people actually grow tired and weary of the constant barrage of emotional provocation
0: as we finish up, I want to talk about a couple of things uh, you know the First one is, you actually expressed recently on Twitter your greatest fear, but I didn't fully understand it, and I want to get you to clarify for me. So you wrote, my greatest fear right now is a kind of perfect storm, that a kind of perfect storm is in the offing, and
1: not on the people's timeline. Mm-hmm. And so what, what what is that? Well, that was a late-night tweet that comes from my sort of, you know, gypsy Nostradamus side. Uh, it, it's not a fully articulated warning, but it comes from an intuitive sense that the mm, convergence of crises and emergencies that has dominated our public life for the last couple of years has just by itself become almost overwhelming. You know, we're seeing people in in vast numbers uh, susceptible to depression, drug abuse, Um, people not going back to work, people who seem to have lost their way by all sorts of metrics and that's COVID and that's inflation. We're about to add international conflict, you know, whether it comes in the Ukraine as seems at this moment to be possible, whether it comes in a Chinese move on Taiwan, I don't know, but I fear that we're one or two crises away I think from a kind of paralysis and what they might be you know as I say it could be an international uh, conflict it could be domestic terrorism um, which we're constantly being warned against in this ominous way that leads me to believe um, you know where there's smoke there's fire Either there is this actual white supremacist, nascent, uh, nativist uh, threat, insurrectional threat, or they're happy to have us think there is, I don't know. But but add too many more uh, uh, logs to this fire and it could turn into a conflagration. I think it is the desire of every every ambitious and proto-autocratic regime to want to rule by fiat. And fiat rule is made most attractive to people when they feel powerless and swamped. And so sometimes I wonder you know, Biden's popularity plummets, 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 yet he never changes course. Uh, why are they so content to see the crises pile up? Why are they not acting to? Uh, you know, moderate the stresses on society. In fact, they seem to be, you know, talking about insurrection and, you know, threats of terror, domestic terrorism in advance of anything really happening. You know, they're turning up the fear. They're turning up the apprehension and a few more of the, and and we have Bill Gates saying, "Wait, wait for the next pandemic. And that's ominous to me. The idea that maybe our leadership is invested to some degree in a uh, situation that the people will find overwhelming such that they can launch their Great Reset or hatch their plan for a new order. It doesn't seem out of uh, of the realm of the possible. Uh, They are looking at the world as a kind of Lego set. And they're only going to be free to build the utopia castle that they crave if the former structures are completely disassembled.
0: You know, and there is precedent for for such things as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the Cloward-Piven strategy basically being enacted, right? In, in New York City and so forth, that's interesting.
1: Well, you know, Hegel, the great philosopher of sort of political history, saw mm, progress, and he was a philosopher of progress. He believed that the the, the politics and history were leading toward the creation of a sort of all-powerful state, which he identified with the deity in fact, and the process by which they did this was conflict, the dialectic, the synthesis and antithesis, and so In his abstract way, he suggested that we we go forward through this constant internalized conflict and crisis machine. And, 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 you know, I sometimes worry that that's the politics of the day, that sometimes they are waiting for the pretext for reforms that they believe are inevitable and perhaps are even willing to help that pretext along.
0: Well, so let's do the flip side here. I'm just also remembering something you told me in a conversation uh, in the past, and I I love this. Actually, I wrote it down. You said, um, I absolutely
1: allow for wishful thinking. I allow in my intellectual process, a place for wishful thinking. I allow myself to imagine what I hope will happen because I see no other way of making it happen if we don't first picture our desires, articulate our hopes, and even dream past likelihood, or probability, a world that's better and in which things work out. We can't, we can't write the script for recovery or the script for normalcy and revitalization without wishful thinking, without a beacon, without a sense of how ideally things could happen because without Imagination, analysis is retrospective. It can only tell you what's happened. It can only examine that which is already, uh, history is already presented. But how do you make history? How do you, how do you turn the wheel of events and time to your benefit? And that comes from imagination. And, and you know, insofar as people say, Walter, you're on the right, or you're a conservative, and I don't know that those are accurate labels, I, 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 I say one problem for me with conservatives and, and, and sort of right-wing thinkers is that they're not doing a good job right now of imagining the future they, they want. They often speak in terms of return to classical or past golden ages, uh, classical situations or golden ages, but I think it's time that those in the dissident, free thinking, conservative, libertarian, whatever community allow themselves to picture not a paradise, but a better world and start to um, lead by attraction and by, uh, by uh, a- appeal rather than scolding and criticism. The left has become a very scoldful uh, world. You know, uh, Put your mask on. Take your vaccine. Shut up. Don't say that word, um, et cetera. The right, if I'll call it that, I think has a great opportunity to corner the market in hope and they should do a better job of it because the situation that we've been in for a couple of years has left a lot of distressed and depressed and I think um, hollow uh, souls out there who are waiting to be filled by something a little more nourishing, a little more optimistic. You know, we don't have a Ronald Reagan yet right now uh, who is capable in his actorly way, say there's a city on a hill, a shining city on a hill and make and sell it. But 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 we have to we have to be moving in that direction now because pointing out the hypocrisies, the contradictions, the failures, the institutional conflicts of the media, of of corporate and governmental power will get you uh, only to the point of disgust. But how do we get to the point of motivating um, optimism? So, Walter, when
0: it comes to media, uh, the the media environment, we're in this situation now, it seems, where a number of people who were once, I guess, on the inside of the corporate or mainstream media environment, like yourself, are now kind of on the outside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I see people... You know, I, many notable examples come to mind and they're kind of trying to figure out what to do with themselves. Some have been very successful and some haven't necessarily.
1: Well, so what you're describing is a Matt Taibbi leaving Rolling Stone and starting a Substack, or leaving The Intercept, uh, Greg, I mean, a uh, Glenn Greenwald leaving The Intercept, uh, uh, a publication he helped found and left because he didn't feel it was being honest in it's reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop before the election. Um, Those are two prominent figures. Barry Weiss from the New York Times uh, going out and starting her own substack, which has become a kind of miniature newspaper in that she has many guest writers and and reporters uh, on on her platform. Um, And uh, you know, this, this movement is one I applaud, um, one I'm part of. Uh, I, I, I write chiefly about politics when I do through Substack, um, after you know having columns and mass circulation magazines. And yet I see a lot of people, even writers who are thinking of going to this mode or readers who are not quite comfortable getting their information from this uh array of sources um hesitating to hesitating to commit to the new model and 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 i i have a sort of term for this um phenomena this this phenomena of resisting the new media um and and i say people have to get over their prestige addiction Um, as writers and as readers as producers of content and as consumers of it, we have to break this attachment to the uh, old, I sound like a revolutionary, uh, to to the old esteemed legacy um, media. It's not that we need to reject it. It's not that we need to, you know, um, silence or tune it out. But we do need to break this prestige addiction we have, which assigns greater value to stories based on the sort of cultural charisma of their uh, of their sources. That keeps us bound to those mastheads, those New York Times, those Atlantics, and so on. Um, and and it's especially hard for writers. You know, I talk to writers all the time who who have a story that they know won't run. Uh, the, the editors at this or that mainstream magazine won't run, but they're they're reluctant to publish it on Substack or to start a Substack themselves or to you know go on a podcast uh, with with their uh, story. And I go, you're prestige addicts. You you just can't get that monkey off your back. You want the credentials. You want the diplomas. You want you know, in the Wizard of Oz, you know when he says the secret to a learned man is a diploma. You know, as though the as though the card or the certificate is what's important. And and, and I think you know uh, we have to we have to move past that. Uh, we can't evolve if we're continually entranced by by now. I think the sort of expired legacies of some of these institutions.
0: Well, so then. Let me ask this as we finish up a couple of things. Um, Number one, um, well, what what is your wishful thinking? What are your hopes? And number two, you know, what are you working on these days?
1: Yeah, my my, the wishful thinking I'm doing these days. In other words, when I look at the situation and I try to imagine an optimistic outcome for it, what I hope and what I sometimes see, maybe I'm confusing it with my hope, is a a new embrace of America's unruly, tumultuous, truly democratic spirit. I I, I think that to the extent that we have um, survived this COVID crisis, we've done so because of our disorganization in some ways, because of our federalist system, because we have states that try different um, solutions to the same problem, and some succeed and some don't. Um, The ability of Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, let's say, to take two different uh, approaches to COVID and then to be able to measure uh, the success of one or the failure of the other and draw conclusions has really helped us, I think. There hasn't been a lot of diversity in the international community to, in the response to COVID. The thing that I love about this country is that besides being individualistic and, uh, you know, aspiring to traditional democratic goals, we seem to be a country that's willing to try stuff. Um, Just try it for the heck of it. You know, uh, uh, you know, tinker in the garage and see if you can make that, you know, uh, car that'll go on water whatever, and, that, and we, get, we get the personal computer from that, or maybe we get the light bulb, or maybe we get, you know, uh, a new medicine. And uh, I just think that we've forgotten to properly value our own creative chaos. And, and, and I think that one of the ways we've gotten through this crisis in terms of the media is that we really have probably the most uh, heterodox and, you know, um, zoologically diverse media landscape on Earth, where we've got Joe Rogan interviewing scientists and doctors and getting a bigger audience than CNN, or, you know, um, we've got uh, substack writers who've left major newspapers or magazines who are, you know, um, and and couldn't maybe write what they write or think the way they think under an advertising regime, selling directly to the audience. we're constantly reading that, that that diversified media landscape is a, a opening for misinformation and disinformation, but I see it much more as a sort of research and development laboratory for good information in the end. Um, uh, so that's that's my positive vision for things. That that the, the shambolic, ruffian. Um, uh multi-tonal uh, nature of our society will once again be seen as a, uh, a real resource rather than a dangerous source of uh, error. Now, what I'm working on now is something I've been working on for years. Uh, it's a little bit complicated. In 2018, I set out across the country to write a kind of book that's not written much more, a nonfiction uh, travelogue, a lot like John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie, that would try to take the temperature of the society by the simple means of getting in a car, getting on the road, not knowing where I was gonna stop that night, having conversations with everyone along the way, um, and by that means try to draw sketch at least, of where we were. I complete that trip and here comes COVID. And COVID has been, if anything, a a, a restraint on movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And that Jack Kerouac style uh, jazzy improvised way of setting out and learning, you know, all of a sudden seemed anachronistic. Um, And rewriting that book, which is largely written with cognizance of the COVID interlude is, is my next project, you know. It's, uh, you know, travels with Charlie with a big interruption, big intermission, um, and because, you know, I, I, I love this country. I, 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 uh, I'm an old unguarded not just patriot, but 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 uh, fan of the American people. Um, they raised me, they're my friends. Uh, they taught me and their language, their ways, their opinions are all to me fascinating and nourishing. Um, I think it's time this country stopped looking to the top for its solutions and started investigating uh, its own, uh, you know, its own self, um, started looking sideways, started exploring again, you know. The, the answers are to be found among one another, not by turning on the television. And I think that's become clearer than it's ever been in this, in this society. Well, Walter Kern, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It was a great, great pleasure and a privilege. Thank you.